Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Beth Bond coming to you live from Decatur, Georgia, and I want to welcome all our listeners today to our special Earth Day uh, episode with uh, Andrew Kimbrell. Andrew Kimbrell is an internationally recognized public interest attorney, public speaker, and author. He is the founder and executive director of the Center for Food Safety. He is also director of San Francisco-based Center for Technology Assessment, co-founder of Foundation Earth, and president of the Board of Humane Farm Animal Care that administers the Certified Humane Label. As an attorney, Kimbrell has successfully challenged federal agencies in several historic court cases. He initiated the court challenge that resulted in a U.S. Supreme Court victory forcing, for the first time, EPA regulation of greenhouse gases and their impact on climate change. He also pioneered the legal strategy that led to the Supreme Court ruling that DNA is not patentable, due to being a product of nature. Through his leadership at CFS, Kimbrell has been at the forefront of legal challenges to genetically engineered crops and lawsuits forcing FDA to adopt new food safety regulations. His legal work also helped maintain the integrity of organic standards. As an author and speaker, Kimbrell has been a leading proponent of regenerative forms of agriculture and organic policies. He is the editor of the nationally renowned book, Fatal Harvest, The Tragedy of Industrial Agriculture, and the author of Your Right to Know, Genetic Engineering and the Secret Changes in Your Food. Kimball's articles and editorials have appeared in the New York Times, Harper's USA Today, and numerous other print and news media publications such as the Huffington Post. He has testified numerous times before the U.S. Congress and has been a featured speaker at dozens of colleges and universities around the country and other public forums, including Google Author Talks, Slow Food Nation, Bioneers, and EcoFarm. He is featured in several documentaries, including The Future of Food, Fresh, and a Critique of Genetic Engineering, Life Running Out of Control. Kimbrell is also a noted expert on a wide range of technology and economic issues. His works in this area include his international best-selling book, The Human Body Shop, The Engineering and Marketing of Life, and the printed versions of his influential E.F. Schumacher lectures, Cold Evil, Technology and Modern Effects, and also Salmon Economics. In addition to his legal career, Kimbrell has also a graduate degree in psychology and has often written in the field, including his book, The Masculine Mystique. Besides his public interest work, Kimbrell's passions include his love of piano, stemming from his earlier career as a concert pianist, poetry, baseball, and wilderness fly fishing. Kimbrell's many accolades include the spot on the Utney Reader List of the world's leading 100 visionaries and The Guardian recognizing him in 2008 as one of the 50 people most likely to save the planet. That is an introduction. And that is um, who we are going to be interviewing today. We are having a little bit of a technical difficulty, and he has not been able to call through. We're going to wait a few more minutes. But as you can see, why I am so excited that we are uh, getting the chance to interview him. He uh, did this for us very last minute, and um, we were excited to have him on for Earth Day. I heard him speak last year at the Creation Care Conference at Decatur First United Methodist Church, and um, he was just so awesome, and it's taken me a year to get him. So very excited to have him with us and hoping that we will have him calling in very soon. If you would like more information about the work that the Center for Food Safety is doing, you can go to centerforfoodsafety.org and um, look, in, look up there. They have um, lots of ways that you can get better information and support for um, to see what work they're doing and support the work they're doing because it is a nonprofit. We're just going to give it a few more minutes. 
And here we go. Andrew. Yes, hello. I'm sorry to be a bit late. That's all right. We've um, been waiting patiently, and we've read your entire bio. So now that we are so excited to hear what you have to say, we welcome you to the show. And we met last year in Decatur at the uh, Creation Care Conference, and I'm just so honored to have you on board uh, as a guest today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, we have a long list of things to talk about, which is why I asked for uh, a, a very gracious hour of your time. But I sort of wanted to start off with um, sort of the the state of the the state of the EPA slash FDA. Now that we have the new administration on board, do you want to give us a quick update with what's happening there? Well, you know, uh, the Center for Food Safety, of which I'm executive director, as people knew that from the bio. Uh, we have offices in D.C. Uh, and also in San Francisco and Portland, Oregon, and, and Honolulu. But big office here in D.C. And so we're, you know, we're certainly right in the middle of uh, the belly of the beast, if you will, at this point. Um, it is very uh, disconcerting for me to uh, see that there are individuals who are running the EPA, the USDA, for example, and even the Justice Department, who have spent their lives opposing the work of those agencies. Uh, these are critical agencies, you know, for the health of every American and for the rights of every American. And to see these agencies really a coup d'etat, if you will, a corporate coup d'etat, uh, over these agencies whose job it is to regulate, you know, folks who are just out there to make a profit, nothing wrong with that, but if you're just making a profit without the public interest in mind, that's not going to lead to very good results. And unfortunately, we have people running the show right now who care much more about the profits of corporations than the public interest of those who need to be protected from unsafe food, need to be protected from toxic pesticides, need to have their rights uh, protected. So it's a, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a time of uh, where I think a lot of us uh, understand that we need to resist and uh, resist strongly. It is certainly uh, wonderful for us that the Center for Safety is very um, legal-heavy and science-heavy. We have over a dozen attorneys, including myself, and uh, we have uh, some great PhDs on staff and folks that we can that, that we can use in consultation. So I think one of the ways, as you've seen with the immigration ban and other aspects of ENDA, one great way to stop it is by going to court and making sure that uh, we have judicial review of all the decisions. But we're going to have to watch the EPA and the USDA especially very, very carefully over the next three and a half years, watch everything they do and make sure every time uh, that they do not respond to their mandate to protect our health and the health of every child and every person in America, we'll go to court and make sure that that is reversed. So big, big challenges uh, facing. And unfortunately, they um, the new administrator, the EPA, has hit the ground running. I was reading on your site that there's already been um, uh, a toxin-approved that causes brain injury for children? Copyrophos, yes. We've get, this is a really nasty, nasty, nasty pesticide. Um, uh, our office in Hawaii, this was used in a lot of the plantations in Hawaii. There's been ample evidence, ample evidence over the last uh, many years. The copyrophos is just absolutely devastating on a number of fronts, by the way. But, yes, also brain injury of children. Uh, it, it, it took litigation in the Ninth Circuit uh, which is the West Coast uh, Circuit of our core federal courts in the United States. It took litigation to even get the Obama administration to finally look at that science and say, you know what, there is no, there is no reason, no rationale, no place in our society for the use of this extremely toxic pesticide, and they said that they were going to phase out its use. Unfortunately, one of the very first decisions uh, that Pruitt made the new administrator of the, of the EPA, of the Environmental Protection Agency, was to reverse that and say, no, no, we're, we're certainly going to allow that to happen. And uh, so, you know, again, uh, we'll, you know, he, we're, you know, it's going to be back in court in the Ninth Circuit. The, the, the good news, and all, all your listeners and followers should know this, is that there is no, I mean, sometimes the, the news media makes it sound like, you know, that the, the sort of, you know, they can just do whatever they want. That's not true. There is something called the Administrative Procedure Act. I've been doing this for 30 years, and I have lawyers on my staff who are doing it for 15, 20 years. 
you know, they have to have scientific basis for what they do. They have to have a reasonable basis. They cannot simply reverse policies uh, by fiat, by simply saying this is what we want. So, again, like the, think of the immigration ban. You know, they thought they could just do it as if there was a new emperor in town or a king or monarch. That's not how our system works. It has to go through judicial review. So that's already back in court, uh, that, uh, the reversal of that ban. That's already being litigated even as we speak. So, again, we're going to challenge them, you know, every way possible. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, this wonderful planet of ours, uh, you know, we've done so much damage over it in the, in the last, you know, century and a half with uh, our use of fossil fuels and our industrial agriculture chemicals and the way we've misused our topsoil and our water, and monocultured our seeds, and now we're threatening the very survival of bees and what we've done to our animals, that we thought that enlightenment had come, that at least we were moving in the right direction. So it is really, you know, it certainly makes your teeth grind to think that all these people, and most of them in their 70s now, are running this government at this point and and really going back to the Neanderthal age of not understanding what climate change is about, not understanding that we're at the end of the age of fossil fuels and we need to move to renewables, and not understanding that industrial agriculture is completely unsustainable and that we have to move to organic and local and humane and socially just and biodiverse alternatives that are out there and thousands and thousands of farmers are using these methods now and Organic is the fastest growing sector in American agriculture. So we need to keep that positive energy going and just see this as a big bump in the road that we're going to stop as much as we can and then go back into the, the, the much more progressive uh, evolution in our, in our society that, uh, that we obviously need to go if we're going to protect ourselves and the planet and future generations. Well, and I keep on telling people um, there is no amount of e, uh, EOs that can – erase your choice to shop organic or to shop non-GMO. And there's no amount of EOs that's going to wipe away farmer's markets. So we just have to double down, do more education with neighbors more proactively, and get them to support those those functions because they can't do anything about that. Yeah, what a great point. I mean, I, I just think that's just a great point. I mean, you know, the thing that makes the food movement so exciting, except, uh, along with the fact that it's grown so incredibly, you know, if you told me, 10 or 15 years ago that, you know, that we could get, you know, 5 to 10 million comments to any, you know, federal agency or that we can close down congressional offices with the food movement, I would think you were dreaming. But we know that's not true. But one of the most exciting things about the food movement, I think all of your followers and everyone listening is, you know, knows, is that it's something you do, can do something about like today, in the next hour. Right. Whether you, what you're deciding to eat for lunch or dinner tonight you can change that. It's very difficult to change where your light sources are coming from. It's very difficult for us to change our energy pattern. Even it's different for us to change our educational systems. And it's, diff you know, and it's difficult for enough for us to try and say, hey, don't drop that bomb over there. Let's not start a new war. Very hard for each citizen to make you know, those changes. And it can be very frustrating because you just feel powerless you know, with climate change. But one of the things you can do is every day you can make that choice in the supermarket to go organic, and that's the most important. But also you can make sure that you, you know, tr absolutely do not become part of the industrial animal system where these 10 billion animals every year are tortured and destroyed. You know, If you're going to eat meat, which is fine, just make sure that it's either humane, certified humane or animal welfare approved on organic and, and, um, and then reduce your meat content. But you can make these decisions about not being part of that cruel system, not being part of the GMO and Monsanto system, of being part of the organic movement. And, you know, one of the things I always tell people is that, and, you know, and uh, I was very fortunate to be part of the creation of the organic law and to be one of the major players in, in creating the organic regulations that we have. It was one, it's one of the wonderful accomplishments that I'm, very proud of both myself and the others that worked on that. Uh, but it's just the floor. Organic is not yeah. the feeling of our food future. It's just the floor. It's an important floor. We need to stand on it. But it's just the floor. And above that floor, if we're looking at a new food future, we're looking about going beyond organic. And we're looking at local, as you point out. We're looking at appropriate scale. See, organic doesn't say anything about local right now. It doesn't say anything about appropriate scale. But we need local and appropriate scale, and we need humane. 
there are really no humane standards, there's almost no humane standards in the organic regulations right now. We tried to put something in that's being blocked now by the Trump administration, and we have nothing about biodiversity. You can have big organic monocultures, and there, you know, there's nothing about social justice. All the farm workers out there, everyone that is working on the farms across America, you know, so we need to say we've got to defend the standards, and I have two full-time people that do nothing all year but defend the organic standards. We had to take the Obama administration to court, not once, but twice, to defend organic. Uh, once to make sure that we weren't using contaminated compost in organic, another to make sure they didn't, that we did not have illegal chemicals on these lists forever. So we've had to go to twice, but they're really, it's under threat right now. So we've got to defend organic, and very strongly. It's very important. But we need to evolve the ethic, and that's that beyond organic ethic, that ecological agriculture ethic of local, appropriate scale, humane, socially just, and biodiverse. Those are the big five. And, that, and those five will also make it climate-friendly because local will mean reduction in food miles and biodiversity will mean that we're protecting our soil. So, so that's, you know, we defend the standards, but we evolve the ethic. All, all of us organic folks and all the food movement folks out there, we all know this, right? We defend the standards, but we evolve the ethic into local, appropriate scale, biodiverse, socially just, and humane. Very important to understand that that's the future of food that we're all building together. And thank you, because um, after you came to Atlanta, I started teaching climate justice for the United Methodist Women. And so I need to include that in my program, because right now I just shock them with 80% of your lettuce is grown in Arizona in January. But um, having that larger conversation is very, very helpful. Now, I have heard that um, the the organic board that sort of monitors all the organic options is sort of under attack and that they are getting some appointments who are more industry-friendly. Is that true? Yeah, well, th there's two problems. There's actually a lot of problems. You know, or, you know uh, if I always tell people lately, you know, I think my greatest concern, because it's also been of such great importance in all of our lives, is the current threat to organic. And let me run through what that, those threats are right now a little bit. I could. Um, one threat is that most of the organic companies were small companies, right? They were started by small entrepreneurs all the way throughout the country, and we know some of their brands. Everyone looks at them. And what happened is as these people got older, they sold these brands. They become quite successful, many of them, and they sold them. So you have a large majority of organic is now owned by large companies. Think Kraft. Think Smuckers, think Nestle, think, think the big companies, and they own a huge number of the organic companies uh, that you're buying at your Whole Foods, you're buying hopefully not, but hopefully your local markets, but still, um, they, run the, they own those companies. Well, you know, we know that by removing the toxins or a large part of the toxins from our food, organic is making our food healthier. We know that, you know, that there are childhood leukemias that are not happening because of organic, because people are eating organic. We know there's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has gone down in people who are, not, who are eating organic because they're not getting all those toxic chemicals, and you can go on and on and on. But that's not being advertised. And I would ask you or anyone uh, listening in today, hey, when was the last time you saw any television, any radio, any magazine, newspaper advertisement advertising the health benefits of organic because you can't use these toxins? I haven't seen one, mm, and the I reason, and I don't think anybody has. And I think the reason for that is it would be very uh, counterproductive for these big companies, where 96, 97 percent of what they're selling is industrial food with all these toxins, to say, you know what, if you buy this organic over here, it could save your child's life. They're not going to say that because it would condemn the rest of what they're selling to be, you know, the the industrial toxic food that it is. So that's the problem right now. Organic is owned by people who don't really want to tell the American people the advantages of organic. So that's one thing. And then these big companies have enormous influence on our regulators at the USDA. Okay, So the organic uh, regulations are run through the National Organic Program at the United States Department of Agriculture, now run by uh, the commissioners Purdue, who's very uh, certainly not no friend to organic. But even before that, there were problems 
with the National Organic Program, not listening to the National Organic Standards Board. The National uh, Organic Standards Board, the NOSB, is really important. It's really unusual in our whole government because it's a combination of, of consumers, of farmers, of industry, certainly, but also NGOs coming together to, to create the new organic standards to make sure they have integrity. There has been, and I'm really worried about the exact issue you brought up, which is that this issue of um, hasn't happened yet, but will this new administration try and stuff this National Organic Standard Board, which gives the recommendations for any change in regulations, will they stuff it with pro-industry people? It's a little hard on the rules for them to do it, but we're going to have to be very, very, very vigilant, very vigilant uh, if we're going to uh, make sure that doesn't happen. But what's happened during the Obama administration, I'm really concerned in the Trump administration, is the National Organic Program has been taking unilateral action without even consulting, as it needs to under the law, this National Organic Standards Board. So that's the problem that we have, is that the USDA often run, really, as I said before, sort of the corporate interests often take over, and that's the problem that we're seeing, is that the, those corporate interests then undermine organic. So, for example, just uh, a year and a half ago, they suddenly announced, by they, I mean the National Organic Program, USDA said, you know what, you can grow organic food in contaminated compost. In contaminated compost, even compost that comes from animal factories, like chicken factories, you can grow organic food in that compost and still call it organic. They just said it. They didn't go do it, didn't do notice and comment, they didn't ask anybody, they were just under pressure from a number of California, you know, big, big California producers. So we immediately sued, and we won. It was illegal. And as of August 20th of, of last summer, we no longer have contaminated compost in organic. Uh, but, you know, it just shows you the power. So I'm very concerned about both the fact that we're not finding, the, the average person does not understand how important organic is to for kids, and number two, the influence of the industry on the Trump administration, on the USDA, in undermining organic standards so that we could not really depend on the integrity of organic anymore, which really would be a catastrophe. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, there, there are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people now who, as you stated earlier, have switched to organic um, diets. And, 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 and what happens is when people switch to organic diets, there's less processed foods and there's a lot more fresh fruits and vegetables. And they just... Uh, you know, the untracked health benefits of it, and it's just so important, so we need to protect it. I want to switch to sort of the confusion between GMOs and organics. Well, I should say non-GMOs and organics. Sort of like people are like, oh, well, it's got non-GMO on it, and so therefore it's okay. Do you want to discuss sort of the challenges with that conversation? Yeah, it's a very, very good question and an important question. Um, let, me, uh, let me just refer back, by the way, we at the Center for Safety, we're right now trying to launch a, a national campaign uh, to put full-page ads in the newspaper, full uh, radio ads, social media ads, even television ads on the proven, peer-reviewed science health benefits of organic. So we're not just sitting back. We're going to do everything we can to raise the money and make sure that we can get those ads that you haven't seen onto the social media, onto the radio, onto the television ads, because we think it's really critical for people to understand how vital this is. So, but now you ask a really good question. So here's, here, <laughs> this totally surprised me. I don't know what you're going to think um, on this, but so uh, Michael, uh, Michael Pollan, uh, the, the food writer, is a good friend of mine, said this to me, and I didn't realize, and, and he's done a couple now. So here's what most polls show. When Americans go, when American customers go into their um, you know, their supermarkets, the label they respect the most is natural. Oh. Isn't that terrible? I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I supposed to know that natural means absolutely nothing, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's natural is, there is no, um, you know, Beth, there is no definition for natural. It's just a, you, any, anybody, you can put natural on anything. It doesn't make any difference. That's the most respected. People see that and they think, oh, that's the best. The next best they see, that they buy is non-GMO. And the third that they buy, the, the, the third trusted, is organic. Well, that's not good. That means that, you know, again, we're going to need to do a lot of this work on organic because that means people are, looking, are buying natural thinking it's better than organic. 
and they're buying non-GMO, thinking that it's better than organic. And I feel a little bit guilty personally, because I've been fighting GMOs for 30 years and been suing Monsanto and been, you know, we, I mean, thank God we've done that because we stopped genetically engineered wheat, we stopped the commercialization of genetically engineered wheat, genetically engineered rice. Uh, we, you know, uh, with a great deal of help from colleagues, we stopped the bovine growth hormone. Uh, we've so far been able to halt any commercialization of, of genetically engineered, you know, bent grass and and uh, you name it. Uh, all these things that, that you know that are, thank God, not out there. Um, and we're in, in court stopping the genetically engineered salmon. So that's all very, very good. But the problem with the non-GMO is that remember, and everyone needs to remember this. Non-GMOs is important, and it means that because not only are GMO, not only do we not understand the health impacts of the um, of the genetic engineering itself, in other words, the changes in the DNA and the food, but we we know for sure that these foods have much higher residues of Roundup because they're all they're they're made to uh, resist huge springs of Roundup, Roundup Ready, it's called. And, and Roundup is, um, and, and not just Roundup, but the whole formula, not just glyphosate, is known to be a probable carcinogen and have other health effects. And that's the same with a number of these other herbicides. And we don't want to have food that's doused in this stuff. So non-GMO is great, but remember, even if you, we all were to go non-GMO tomorrow, even if we were to stop genetic engineering all biotechnology of foods tomorrow, no corn, no soy, uh, you know, it's primarily corn and soy, but you also have a little bit of, of sugar, beet sugar, but if you stop all that tomorrow, right, you'd st- and, and, and that wouldn't stop us from having all these terrible pesticides, atrazine, all the endocrine disruptors, the neonicotinoids, right, all these, uh, imiclopred and, 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 and clothianidin, all these terrible bee-killing neurotoxic pesticides, they have nothing to do with GMOs. So it's only by buying organic and by farming organic and, and beyond organic, do we get rid of this huge, all these huge classes of very dangerous pesticides, and not only for us, but for all the creatures with whom we share this planet. And so GMO is fine, non-GMO is fine, but it is by no means the full deal. Organic is infinitely better. Don't, don't, don't buy GMO over organic. Buy organic over GMO, and, and natural means nothing. I mean, that's the message. Natural means nothing. Natural is basically a fraud. Uh, non-GMO well, is sometimes fraudulent because sometimes you'll see non-GMO water or non-GMO 100% orange juice or non-GMO olive oil. Well, there are no GMOs. Most of the GMOs are in, in corn and, and soy byproducts. Uh, but organic is the way to go because organic says no to GMOs uh, but also says no to all these other classes of toxins and pesticides. Right. I, I actually, and I have nothing against the non-GMO project, and, you know, if I can't get organic, I do choose to go with that. But sometimes I think if we had just put a butterfly on the USDA, USDA organic stamp, we would be okay, right? Because it's almost like that butterfly is just makes people happy, right? Yep. There's, yeah, we use you know, CFS. So we often use it for our programs and our projects because we're defending the monarch butterfly. Right. So people need to. So it's a little confusing. But so how do GMOs kill monarch butterflies? You know. So what happens is that the because of genetically engineered agriculture, primarily in the Midwest with corn and, and soy, there's been such a massive spraying of Roundup, and that Roundup and Roundup kills. All every you know everything except for those that like the soy or corn that's been designed to withstand it, but everything else dies, and that includes you know the 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 the, uh, the whole milkweed families that are de- that all these monarchs and other butterflies are dependent upon. So they you know they they have a multi generational journey out west, and part of that is in the Midwest, and and with all that milkweed dead, there's nothing for the butterflies to eat on or reproduce on. And so we're seeing spectacularly sad declines in the monarch because we have, with 115 million more pounds of Roundup, for example, are sprayed all over the, uh, every year all over the Midwest. So that's, kill, that's what's killing the butterflies, and that's why the butterfly symbol is often used on non-GMO or those of us who are fighting the GMOs. But, folks, please make no mistake, you know, uh, buy organic. And don't think that every time you see a non-GMO 
on a package, that means that there even is a GMO available, right? That's another problem I have with, as I mentioned, with the non-GMO project. They do a very good job of, it's not at all, I mean, it's not a hoax at all, it's, they do a very good job of monitoring, but the problem is that they use their premium on products, you know, where there is no GMO, I mentioned, there is no GMO right. oranges, no GMO olives, there's, um, there's almost no GMO, GMO fruits or vegetables at all. Uh, so they're they're using they're using their their label and it often makes people think that GMOs are everywhere and can't be stopped. When in fact, actually, it's fairly limited use. It's a large part of our cropland is being grown in GMOs, but actually, it's a very you know you you can avoid it. You can avoid it in your supermarket if you just know where it is. So I, I, we have a couple other things that I really want to cover, but this is just a, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about the talcum powder you know issues and cancer. And the um, gentleman was saying, use cornstarch. And the first thing that came to my head is, is I'm like, well, where do you get non-GMO, you know, or organic cornstarch? I, I just don't even think you can get it. Uh, I don't. That's a great question. You know, Beth, maybe one of your followers there can can, can give us a good answer. Yeah, no, you. Uh, yeah, no, it's. Um, yeah, you know, it's. Most people don't know this, okay? But you know. Our, the system we have in America, you often hear, and I often hear it, and oh, my God, I hear it all the time. Usually when anybody's debating, they go, Andy, I don't know what your problem with industrial agriculture is. In America, we have the, the greatest food system in the world. We produce more food than anywhere else in the world. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. We have, if you look at America's cropland, and by cropland right now, I mean uh, America's land where crops are harvested and grown, right, all over America, well over half of it, well over half of it is in genetically engineered corn and soy. So half of our farmland, you know, where we grow our crops and harvest our crops, well over half of it is in corn, genetically engineered corn and soy. Well, where does that corn go? Well, that corn, about 40-plus percent, goes into automobiles. Another significant percentage, probably around 30, 35 percent, goes to feed animals in these horrible animal factories an industrial animal system we talked about earlier, Beth, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, then, and the, a lot of it's exported, and then the rest of it goes into high fructose corn syrup and these other additives, cornstarch, these kinds of things, and only a tiny percentage actually directly feeds anybody. And the same is true with soy. It goes into automobiles, goes into soy lecithin, goes to feed these animals that they shouldn't you know, be eating all this stuff anyway. They should be eating their natural foods. And, so, and a tiny percentage actually feeds people. And so that means that well over half of all of American cropland is devoted to what we call commodity crops. Not food crops, commodity crops. Big difference, folks. Nobody ever talks about this. You probably don't hear this on mainstream media, but that is a huge difference. That means you're not actually using your agriculture to grow food at all. You're using your agriculture to make money by filling up automobiles, by making byproducts that are unhealthy and that we don't need in processed foods, and by fueling these animal factories. And we don't even need to talk about the cruelty and the humanity, but if you want to go a little bit deeper, the calories that in this food that then has to go through these animals is the most inefficient use of any kind of crop because you have to feed so much so many calories, the animal to get much, much fewer calories out of the animal as far as the feed is concerned. So the, this is a disaster. So if the world were to adopt our food system, if the world suddenly, by some hideous snap of the fingers, tomorrow said, okay, well over 50% of all of the, the farmland in the world where crops are being grown and harvested, well over 50% will be in commodity crops, the starvation in the world would just go exponentially over the top. It's a terrible system. It's a great system for Monsanto. It's a great system for, you know, Cargill. It's a great system for the people that are making money on the commodities. But it's not about growing food anymore, our, our agriculture system. It's about making money on these commodities. And, you know, if you want a, you know, if you want a social justice way to think about this, right, we have massive malnutrition, massive starvation and food uh, you know, we have people who literally are not getting enough food every day, millions in this country, millions of children, for example, who are being undernourished, malnourished, or going hungry. 
And meanwhile, we're spending half of our, our, our most fertile farmland in these commodities. And if we just t- took one step back and said, you know what, we should judge our agriculture, and let's judge every agriculture by how much nutrition, how much nutrition are you getting per acre? I don't know how much yield, I don't care how much yield you're getting out of some commodity that's not feeding anybody. I want to know how much nutrition are you getting, good, healthy nutrition, because that's what agriculture is supposed to be about. And by that standard, our agriculture system is a disaster. Hashtag agree. Um, it, yes, absolutely. So let's talk about, because one of the things, I mean, Monsanto, and I, have, I am guilty, Monsanto is sort of like the most egregious, you know, put their finger in your face, uh, corporation in regards to this conversation, but people don't understand that Monsanto is not the only uh, seed company. Well, I don't even like to call them a seed company. You know, patented, genetically modified, whatever they call it. Um, so let's talk about because Monsanto, there was enough pushback with with their aggressive tactics that now Monsanto is trying to merge, and it seems like the big six is just sort of a mess. So can you give us an update about what's happening on that end? Sure. Absolutely. So what's happening is that we're seeing, um, and a lot of this has to do with, with international, what's going on international, with commodities, with, with folks, what people are doing in the world. So I'm, I'm not going to get into all those details because it's kind of complicated. But, what, but the bottom line is that we are seeing massive mergers now in these big ag chemical companies. So let's look, take a look at it. So Monsanto... Yeah, Bayer is basically, which is a German company, and is, is taking over Monsanto. And by the way, you know, we all are thinking we want to try and stop these huge mergers, and I'll, I'll say why in a minute. My own view is, I, you know, I don't want to discourage folks, but it's really going to be hard, especially with the Trump administration. I just don't think we have enough influence to try and say, hey, these are monopolies that shouldn't happen. So, I sadly, you know, I'm hoping I'm wrong, but I think these things are going to happen. So Bayer is going to take over Monsanto. And when Bayer takes over Monsanto, it'll be the largest ag chemical company in the world uh, between the two of them. Uh, now, Bayer has a number of other products, including aspirin, we all know about, but it's, uh, it will be in Monsanto. We want. At that particular point, uh, Monsanto ceases to be an American company at all and will probably move to London to avoid taxes and probably rename itself, you know, like something like Eco Green or some other misleading, <laughs> misleading term. Call themselves, you know. I don't know what they'll call themselves, but it'll be, I'm sure it'll be misleading. So, uh, and then uh, DuPont is merging with Dow, and Dow is, you know, we always jump on Monsanto, correctly so. They're the poster child for what a bad corporation is all about, but Dow is equally a poster child for what a bad corporation is about. Dow is in just almost the same number of crimes as Monsanto, including its new uh, 2,4-D-resistant GMO crops, which we're in court fighting even as we speak. Um, so Dow and DuPont are, are coming together. And then you've got ChemChina, which has taken over Syngenta. Syngenta is a Swiss company, but it will now be ChemChina, part of Chem, Chemical China. So those will be the big three, whatever Bayer and DuPont, Bayer and Monsanto, whatever that's called together, with DuPont and Dow when they come together, and ChemChina and Syngenta. So those are gonna, they're going to have a huge monopoly on uh, pesticides, other agrochemicals, but they're also going to have a huge, major, own a large majority, I should say, of the seed, commercial seeds of the world. And um, so let's take a look at that just for a second. So currently, Monsanto owns 27% of all the commercial seeds sold in the world. Uh, Bayer owns 3%, so that's 30% right there. Then if you add, depending on uh, DuPont Dow, is at about 17. And then about ChemChina, Syngenta, 11 or 12. So right now, those three big conglomerates that we just went over, we'll own somewhere between 60 and 65% of all the commercial seeds in the world. Uh, uh, think about that. What if three big companies owned 60, 70% of all the water in the world? Or, you know... <laughs> Uh, or, you know, you know, even all the oil in the world, and that's, are, those are already concentrated enough. But, I mean, just three big companies? So that's really, and, and, they, and they keep buying up these small seed companies, so it's only a matter of time before 
that moves into the 70, maybe even 80 percentile. So um, that, and, 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 and you, know, I'm, look, you know, I just want to make sure people know what that means. That doesn't mean they own them and sell them. That means that they own them and they can decide what to sell and not to sell, right? Because often they will buy up a lot of seed companies and they'll just deep six those seeds. They won't even use them. They just don't want competitors to their GMO varieties or other hybrid varieties. So sometimes they buy up these things to kind of add a little bit of punch to their varieties, but sometimes they just buy them up to buy up their competitors. So this massively decreases seed diversity, increases monocultures, makes our food less secure, makes all food less secure. And um, so it, it's a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, and, of course, once they own them, they refuse to allow farmers to save them, save any seeds. And 80% of the world's farmers depend on saving seeds to feed their communities. So this is a really huge potential disaster. You know, as I always say, GMOs don't solve hunger. They actually are part of the hunger problem because they create these monocultures, which are dangerous as far as being susceptible to disease. They make seeds infinitely more expensive. They make, they, uh, through their patenting, make sure that, that we can't save these, that farmers can't even save these seeds and therefore feed their communities and not have to pay the new seeds. And not only that, as I mentioned, they push these commodity crops, which means that the best farmland in America and some of the best farmland in the world is not even used to make food at all. So the next time you hear Monsanto or Dow or DuPont or one of these big companies say that they're interested in solving world hunger, I mean, the only appropriate response is laughter and derision. I mean, everything they're doing is going in the opposite direction. I mean, when it's when it's Monsanto, and they, they care about the bottom line, and most of their bottom line actually increases hunger. It has very little to do with solving the hunger problem. Well, and I'm, that was a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk about next. But very quickly, I will say what really got me interested in this conversation as I was listening to uh, Dr. Uh, I'm going to mess her name up. She's from India, but she was trained in Canada. I'm sure you know who she is. She's one of the top six women for rights. And she was talking about all the Indian farmers are getting upside down to Monsanto and how they're committing suicide. And so you may be just, talking about Shiva, or are you talking about yes, Anuradha Patel? Yeah, Vandana Shiva. Yeah, Vandana Shiva. She runs Navdanya in India, and she's one of the great the great leaders, uh, agricultural leaders internationally, huh? Well, and it just broke my heart, right? I'm like, you know, it, 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 and the, and it's not just committing suicide. It's also there's no integrity in regards to, you know, they get the, the cotton and then they're, you know, spraying the cotton because it's Roundup ready and there's no clothing, you know. I mean, in the United States, they would be in hazmat suits, but, you know, just farmers out in the field spraying this very toxic stuff with no protection um it just you know if 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 you don't care about organics or things like that the social justice alone should drive every person on this issue um but that being said i'm i'm sort of interested because um we've got some really big well-known well-respected uh philanthropist um out there supporting you know, this world hunger food insecurity issue by, you know, by, you know, putting Monsanto out in developing countries all over the world. Well, what can we do to stop that? Oh, goodness. Um, that's, that's a tough question. Um, so here's, here's the problem, and, and we're here, in case folks are wondering, we're talking about Bill Gates with the Gates Foundation a certain extent, Warren Buffett, a lot of the big uh, silicon gazillionaires, and they, uh, you know, uh, the Gates Foundation, for example, when Monsanto was in trouble about six or seven years ago, they actually just, uh, you know, they, they flushed about 20, $25 million into, or more, maybe $27 million into uh, Monsanto just to help it out for a while. I mean, so they, I think, I think for people who, I think for people who have a very mechanistic worldview, for people who just see the whole world as just one big machine, uh, they, the idea of genetic engineering for them gets very confused with software. They think, well, you know, if you know, plants are just machines and their DNA is their software or their hardware, or their, you know, we can just shift around the hardware and the software and create these plants. But uh, that is not how nature works. It's not how you and our bodies work. 
uh, we are very, very complex. We are not machines. And, um, you know, I think years ago the genetic engineers thought they could just play with DNA for a while and that they could change all these traits in plants. And uh, it turns out that they're wrong. You know, the, any phenotypic trait in plant, by that I mean, you know, its ability to survive in drought conditions, its ability to increase its, its vitamin content, its ability to intake nitrogen, all those major parts of a plant are incredibly complicated. And it just doesn't involve DNA. It involves, or what we call genes within DNA. It involves RNA. There's a huge number of things called epigenetic things in these plants. They're constantly working with the inner and the outer environment, how much sun, what the soil is like, all the microbes in the roots, all the microbes in the soil, the, the alchemy of photosynthesis, when it's working, how it's working, how it affects the plant and the glucose level of the plant. These are incredibly complex. So actually... That's why genetic engineering, except for this herbicide tolerance and this BT, which they've been doing for almost 25 years, uh, that's all they got, really. I mean, they were able to say, here's an apple that doesn't brown as quickly. You know, I call it the Botox apple because you know how old it is. Um, but, uh, you know, they, it's been a failure because it's really, really complicated. But they very quickly are able to convince, even, I mean, and, and anybody who knows science at this point knows that. I mean, I've even debated. Uh, you know, Fraley at, at Monsanto, and he's admitted that. You know, they were, they, they were pretty much in, the, in Neanderthal science, you know, 25 years ago, thinking that they could just play with DNA and that would give them control over the entire, they could make whole new plants, basically control evolution of plants and animals, maybe even humans. And that's turned out to be a pipe dream. The, the science is just not there. It's much, infinitely more complicated, you know, than they, than they ever imagined. But the computer guys, uh, particularly, they, 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 they love to hear that, it's going to be easily manipulable. It's basically all life is a computer, just change the software. And so they bought into it to the tune of billions of dollars. And it's very concerning because, you know, they have a lot of money they can throw around. So I've traveled to Africa and Asia and South America, Beth, and I've been, I've been really discouraged to see how much money they, they've thrown around. And these are places where there's not a lot of money for research. And instead of the research going into agroecological regenerative practices, you know, instead of saying how can we use, you know, low-impact tractors in Africa, in certain parts of Africa, how can we even just culverts and, and, and water, having better water resources in Africa, how can we build small-scale plants in Africa? Anybody's traveled through many countries in Africa knows they have enormous abundance, but it's all dying on the ground because they don't even have the small-scale factories to turn their fruits into juices and to, to be able to store their vegetables. And so that's what's needed there. But instead, uh, because of the uh, brainwashing by these companies of these billionaires, uh, you see huge amounts of money going into GMO research that have led to absolutely nothing, that haven't fed anybody, that haven't created new plants, that haven't done anything. And um, it's really unfortunate because it's a massive uh, opportunity cost lost if that money were to just go into the reasonable, uh, uh, you know, solutions for Africa, for parts of Asia and, and South America, it, it would be wonderful. But the, the but they don't do it. It's a little like for those who've been following people like the Gates Foundation. When the Gates Foundation says we're going to put a computer, we're going to spend all this money to put a computer in every you know classroom and in front of every student in America. Well, have you ever gone out and see what's really needed in a lot of these schools? They, sometimes they, they need teachers because their classes are way too big, no matter how many computers are there at the desks. And the teachers can't control. What about having you know, roofs that are leaking? What about having, as we have here in D.C. and many other places, lead contamination in the water in these schools, which is causing brain damage in kids? You know, we have so many needs for so many kids that the idea that just by putting a computer in front of every kid, that that somehow is going to, and, and we know actually in the earlier grades, computers can actually be detrimental to the learning of the children. So it's this kind of stupid philanthropy. You know, the real philanthropy should be, let me do my homework. Let me go to a place I don't really understand, don't know, a culture I don't know and understand, and let me see what's really needed there and talk and listen to the people and look at the land and look at what's going on and then, and then do the kind of small-scale, medium-scale, or large-scale funding that fulfills those needs. But they've been able to convince by these big companies and by the people they meet in their big, you know, conferences in Switzerland and Davos and elsewhere, oh, this is really simple. We're going to call, you know, cure world hunger by treating the entire plant world as if it was computers, and they buy it. It's really a shame. I don't know the answer. Uh, 
I think it would take a quite a psychological, cultural switch for some of these folks to really, to really understand what agriculture is about, what food is all about, and what the needs of the farmers of the world is really about. Right. Well, we'll just work in small ways. One of the uh, proverbs that we use in the climate justice training is an African proverb that says, many little people making many little changes in many little places can change the world. So we'll just keep on working on that. Yeah, you know, I mean, we have a we have a, a, a culture of of success in our country, and I have it like a lot of other people. And I'm often asked, you know, well, did you win that lawsuit, or did you win this thing, or did you did that piece of legislation pass? And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes no. Sadly, we lost that case, or no, the the other forces were able to defeat uh, that really wonderful legislation. It happens a lot. We we win a lot, but we lose a lot. And I always tell people, and I've been doing this now, you know, gosh, over 30 years, in Washington, but also around the country in various states and stuff. And I see, you know what? We're not required to be successful every day, folks. We're just required to be faithful every day. Oh. Right. That is that is so it, profound. And yeah, I'll be because, using it everywhere. I'll, I'll credit you, Andy, but I'll, I'm using okay. it everywhere. What I'm, I'm saying is that you know, if you put that burden, that's way beyond our pay scale, right? It's not right. a burden to be successful. That will happen in time or not, and, and, and that has something way beyond our control. But what is not beyond our control is to say every child in America has the right to non-toxic, healthy food. That, that, right. is, that, that is a right that they should have. It isn't, should, we shouldn't say, oh, no, if the market says if your parents don't have any money or you're, they made some bad decisions, whatever, you starve. Sorry, that's what the market, that, that's supply and demand. Sorry, you starve. And it should be the same, frankly, I believe, with shelter and health care. You know, they're, they're, these things, the market is fine, but it should not be involved in health care, it should not be involved in, in shelter, and it should not be involved in food. Everyone has the right to that. And as part of just being a human being with the dignity that's inherent in what it means to be a human being. And, and this is true of our treatment of animals, our treatment of our farmland. You know, these are the, 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 you know, there's a respect that is owed these aspects of creation. That um, and, and and that's what we're faithful to, and that's what we. That, and and then we just keep keep going in every in whatever arena you do. And you know, you know there's no small and there's no large because sometimes the small becomes the large. Sometimes the large can be the small. You never know. You know, it's not about you know getting on CNN or something like that. Sometimes you do a lot more just in a local community and be a lot more effective and change money more hearts. So, but it's not about being successful. It's just about being faithful. And just remember that. And, uh, and everyone out there, you know, just keep the work going. That's what I do. And that, that way you'll never get burned out, folks. You will not get burned out in this work because you'll be warmed by the faithfulness of your, of your vision and your principles, and you'll just keep going. Well, if you're dependent emotionally on the success and get discouraged, and we lost last year, and now Trump is president, oh, my God, Pruitt, this. No, 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 no. It's not great. We've talked about it you know, during this hour. But that's, that's okay. That doesn't affect our faith. That doesn't affect what we need to do. So just, uh, you know, it's my principle. It's how I work and how my people work. So I, and I, and I, you, I'm telling you, it's an absolute prescription to, to make sure you don't burn out in this work. Well, and it, it's such – I'm going to make sure that every nonprofit person I know listens to at least this last 10 minutes because you can get burned out. But if, if, if you just – if you think about it from a faithful instead of success, because that, that is one of our challenges as Americans, right? Everything has to be a success, and everything has yep. to make mo- more money than the last one. And, you know, we, we can't really stop and count. You know, it may not be a numbers game, although I, I am very – guilty of being a numbers kind of person but you know if 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 87 lives were changed here and three lives were changed there you know that gives you a total of 90 that doesn't mean that the second program was you know a failure you, you still change three people's lives yeah and you know and uh sometimes you know to change somebody's psyche is and to change the, their their spirit you know the sort of their spirit if you do that with one person wow that's pretty special, you know. I mean, you know, let's, yeah. let's all be, let's all be, you know. You know, I, I would say, you know, on a radio show like this, if, if if three or four people, I mean, listen to this and listen to our conversation today and are changed by it, wow, that's huge. 
That's, I mean, I, that's inca- almost incalculable. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I have no, um, you know, this, the prejudice for success and for size um, uh, is not how things work in this world. Um, and it's not and how we just works. have to remember that. It's not how change works. It, you know, change mm-hmm. does not work when, when 90% of the people suddenly change. Usually it's just a few. It's the Martin Luther Kings. You know, it's the Gandhis. It's, you know, you know, all the people. It's usually a minority. But they stay faithful, and suddenly everyone, history comes to meet them. And, uh, and that's how change happens. So you just want to stay faithful, and history will come to meet us. It will. It already has. Right. The, the, the growth of the food movement is phenomenal. As I said, oh, yeah. this conversation, I had, oh, my Lord, 20 years ago, you, can, you know how many people were interested in GMOs or organic or... No, but people are talking. There's no like four channels on television on the Food Channel. I mean, you kidding me? Everybody was talking about you know we're going to be like the Jetsons and be eating vitamins and instead of food and fast food was going to take over the world. That didn't happen, folks. It didn't happen because so many people in so many different communities, so many people understood the importance of food, and and you know I think in, in many of the religious communities understood the sacredness of food. That food has always had a sacramental character. And I think you're seeing that restored, as well as a beautiful cultural character to food that people are really into and really understanding it as a wonderful way also to express your culture and to express who you are. So it's just I'm so elated to see how great the food has gone. And, and again, the great thing about it is, you, you know, today, folks, if, you, if you've been eating industrial meat, don't do it. Just, just stop. I'm not saying become a vegetarian unless you want to. But stop eating industrial meat. You know, make sure the meat is local or it's certified humane, uh, which is a very good label. Uh, I'm, I'm president of the board of that, and also animal welfare uh, approved. So there's there's some great labels out there, but it's just you don't want to be part of that, and you don't want to be part of the GMO stuff. And and, and um, so and I know there's sometimes um, well these aren't more expensive, but sometimes buying organic, I know it's tough. Um, but at least with your anything with your fruits and your vegetables where you're where there is, whether it be you know grapes or it be blueberries, anything where you're eating the whole thing and there's no peel, that's where you really want to make sure that you buy organic. And that's because you, you, there's no way you can wash off a lot of the toxins uh, that are there, and so you don't want to you don't want to do that to yourself and to your children. Right. Well, we are almost out of time now. I gave him the website address at the beginning, um, but how can people how can people support your work? How can they get more involved and and stay educated and engaged? Yeah, well, you know, you you know, um, you got the website center, uh, you know, all one word, centerfoodsafety.org, right? And centerfoodsafety.org, you can stay informed. You can become a member at no cost. We do not charge for being a member. That means you'll be getting regular alerts, and you can you can say, hey, I don't want this many or that, but at least you'll know what's going on, you know, often in your locality. Uh, we are just starting, I'm so happy to tell you this, we are just starting a, uh, this month we're announcing the first ever international uh, seed savers network. So if you are a seed saver out there, we are saying to heck with this corporate ownership of seeds, we are going to, uh, it's sort of like a, think of it like a huge dating site, except nobody's dating, what they do is they're exchanging seeds, exchanging seed information, and it means that everybody who's saving seeds out there can talk to everybody around this country and eventually around the world. And we can have a whole nonprofit public saving of all this diversity just as the corporations are trying to get rid of it. So what a great thing. We're so happy about that. So remember that. And I think that you know, my message to everyone out there, yes, please support Center for Food Safety. Please support what we do uh, and, and become informed. I think our site is really good on that. But perhaps for me, almost more importantly, is make sure that you remember that you're not a consumer. I hate that word. Consumers, you know, fires consume. They used to call it tuberculosis consumption because it eat, you know, ate up the bodies of those who were suffering. We're not consumers. By the decision I make, and I don't always make the right ones, that you make, that we make for our families, that we make what we're growing, the decisions that all of us make will create a new food future. We'll create it. If we make the right decisions, we'll have an organic and beyond food future. If we continue to make some of the wrong decisions, will have that terribly destructive, unsustainable industrial system that does so much damage to our bodies and to the planet. So we are creators. Like it or not, folks, we have that responsibility, each and every one of us. So the choices you make 
today and hopefully in the future with your food choices. Become a creator. Let's create this new food future together. That's awesome. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Just really, really appreciate it. Total honor, and I cannot think of a better way to start Earth, Earth Week this week than to have you as a guest on the show. Well, I'm so pleased to be here, and let's do it again. Okay, great. Thanks. Later on. Bye-bye. Okay, I can't really, I can't think of a better way to start Earth Week. That was really amazing. And, you know, I always tell people progress, not perfection. So don't think you have to go out and buy everything organic every single day. Oh, my goodness. You know, but just start making simple choices and then make more choices and then make more choices. And it's amazing. And, you know, you slip off the wagon, you just get right back on. So, anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, interview with uh, Andy. And I hope that you will share this one. This one I feel like it's really important to share. And um, there's a lot of things we can do that has nothing to do with politics. This is Beth Bond signing out as the curator of Sustainable News or Southeast Green and your hostess with Jeff Hicks and the Heretics Life's a Peach. <laughs>